0: So we're going to the Bible reading now, which is on page 1020, is it? 1020, it's in Luke 1051, it's in Luke chapter 18, and it starts at verse 18, and then we're going to go over into a reading in Luke 19. A certain rule asked him, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life why do you call me good jesus answered no one is good except god alone you know the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not give false testimony honor your father and mother all these i've kept since i was a boy he said when jesus heard this he said to him You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich To enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife, or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. And over to chapter 19, starting at verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost
1: morning everyone let's pray as we get started father may these words in my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight lord our rock and our redeemer amen Amen. As Bruce mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, I often get into some pretty interesting conversations at my gym that I go to. At the end of uh, a session one day, I was probably looking a little bit like this. Uh, I, I got into an interesting conversation with a couple of my gym buddies. For the past few months, the three of us had been working out at the same times. We'd often strike up conversation mid-workout, just kind of small talk stuff, but they both knew I was a minister here at St. Matt's, and uh, one of them was absolutely fascinated by that. She just asked me all sorts of questions every time it came up. But then on this particular day, it was different. At the end of the session, the three of us were slumped over, trying to catch our breath, and uh, we got onto the topic of the coming weekend, and I said that I was taking a wedding, There was barely a pause before one of them jumped in and said, well, Kate and I are gay, so would you marry us? Now, you could tell from her tone she wasn't actually asking me to take their wedding. She wanted to know if her gym buddy was homophobic. What would you have said? If you want to know how I replied, you're going to have to tune in for a little bit longer. But I promise I will come back and, and tell you how that conversation ended. But I start with that story because the title for today's message, of course, is the question Is God homophobic? Is God homophobic? This is the third in our series, Confronting Christianity, uh, where we're asking confronting questions of the Christian faith and, and together taking a look at some possible answers. And I've got to say, out of the six questions we're looking at, I really think I got the most confronting of them all. Uh, I don't think I've had more people tell me that they're praying for me before a sermon than this one, which can I just say, if, if you have been praying, thank you so much, and actually really have felt the impact of, of your prayers. I also don't think I've ever written a sermon and felt the kind of danger that I've felt this week. That's new for me, uh, and I also don't think I've ever quite felt the weight of of there being so much to say on on this without really the time to say it all. So I do apologise if there's stuff in here that you're like, why didn't you say that? There's a reason. We'd be here all day. And add to that the pastoral concern of just trying to consider all the different places where people fall on this, right? Um, There are going to be people here who are really worried about the direction in which our world is headed, there's others who, who really want to hold to God's word and yet feel quite conflicted when it comes to this. And there, there, there's obviously also many, or even most of us here, who are going to know and love people who identify as LGBTQI, whether they're friends or family members or co workers, people that we dearly love. And that adds an extra dimension. I'm also expecting that there are going to be people here today for whom this is a deeply personal area, and maybe you've never stepped foot in a church until now. Can I just say, I love that you have, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm also aware that there may be people across today who are here and are are grappling with this area of their own sexuality, and maybe you've been on that road all on your own. If that is you, I love that you're here as well. I guess the last thing to say before we crack in is you might have been a little surprised, not just with the tumble that Deb took, but the passage that she read, right? Because they're not the kind of well-worn passages of you know, Genesis 2 and Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 that you might be familiar with. I'm going to briefly engage with some of that uh, a little later on, but I think we as a church have actually covered a lot of those passages when we've tackled topics like marriage and sexuality and singleness, and, and those things are actually still up online on our podcast or on YouTube. You can track them down and have a listen. But for today, I really wanted us to take a step further as a church and not just look at what the Bible says but think about what we might say. How we might respond if someone asked us, Is your God homophobic? Now, before we think about a way forward, I want to begin by unpacking a little bit what makes this hard. There are plenty of reasons. I'm just going to walk us through three. Firstly, on this, I think we've really lacked love. And by we, I'm talking about society in general, but. The church as well, in particular. Homophobia and bigotry are, are a real and terrible problem. In the past, and unfortunately still today, here and around the world, LGBTQI people have been subject to appalling treatment. Physical violence, verbal abuse, mistreatment, discrimination. And unfortunately, at times, Christians and the church have we've been party to it. Shame on us. And if you're here today and you bear the scars of that kind of treatment, I'm so sorry. And I'm sorry for when Christians are treated this as just an argument to be won or an issue to be debated or a point to be made rather than seeing and respecting you as the person that you are. I'm sorry for the way the church has often come across as bewildered or angry or defensive when it's tried to engage, rather than with the grace and compassion and understanding God calls us all to act with. Friends, we need to do better, because too often in the past we haven't. And this is part of what makes this conversation a hard one, right? We've lacked love. And, And it's partly because of that, we've also lost the perceptions game, here in the West at least. Now, over the, on the issue of same-sex relationships, the public debate is now over. The historic position on marriage and sexuality that, that has been held by all sections of mainline Christianity for the last 1,900 years, that is no longer tolerated. Today, that view is not just seen as outdated or old-fashioned, it's, it's outright harmful and as dangerous. Just as we saw play out last week with the Manly Sea Eagles, there really is now only two options. Take your pick, right? It's pride or it's bigotry. Friends, we've lost the perceptions game. And we lost it in record time. The level of societal change that's taken place on this in just the last 40 years, it's it's astounding. And those who've studied this phenomenon consider it to be amongst the most rapid cultural shifts in human history. That's just worth acknowledging. And it's also worth saying it hasn't just happened by accident. It's the result of very intentional, very shrewd activism and campaigning over many years. Let me just point you to this book as one example. It's called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. It was written back in Uh, 1989 by Marshall Kirk who was a neuropsychologist and Hunter Madsen who was an advertising executive both of them were advocates for the gay rights movement and it is it is like a literal playbook for everything that has unfolded over the last 30 years today it's really hard to get your hands on it's out of print it'll cost you thousands of dollars to get it off Amazon Uh, so good luck but it lays out step by step the path to achieving the kind of celebration and acceptance LGBTQI people enjoy today. According to Kirk and Madsen, it it really involves three key things. Firstly, desensitising society to gay relationships. Secondly, jamming up all opposition. And thirdly, converting opinion. At one point in the book, they write this. They say, talk about gayness until the issue becomes entirely tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straight to think homosexuality is just another thing, meriting no more than just a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is basically won. They wrote that back in 1989. I'm not at all having a go at the gay rights movement at this point, all I'm saying is that where we find ourselves now is the result of of a very intentional, well-planned, well-resourced movement. One of the most effective movements of of its kind in history. And the result? Society's moved. Massively. We've lost the perceptions game. And, and And that's also what makes this so hard. Uh, and I think we feel that, don't we? The third reason why this is so hard is because we've got a 10,000-foot answer. And what I mean by that is, is that the biblical answers around uh, the, the place and purpose of sex, as in who, who should and shouldn't be having it, that sits 10,000 feet above sea level. It's like the, the peak of a massive mountain. And there's a lot of terrain to cover in order to get there. The historic Christian view about sexuality, that it's only for a man and a woman who are joined in marriage, that sounds bizarre to our world, doesn't it? It sounds insane to our culture, and it's partly because of this, because it it, it takes a whole lot of steps in order to get to that summit. I mean, base camp, base camp is that God exists. If someone's not with you at base camp, then good luck getting them any higher up the mountain. And it's not just that God exists, but that He created this place. Not just that He created it, but that He designed it. He designed it with with purpose and with order. A design that we no longer follow because humanity has fallen. And that makes things incredibly messy and broken at points. But nevertheless, Christians are to embrace God's good design for marriage and for sex within that. See how high you've got to climb in order to make sense of what the Bible says about sexuality? If at any point on the journey up, someone is not willing to go further, then where we end up landing on this stuff, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not saying we can't have that conversation. But this is part of what makes it hard. This is why this conversation is really not going to work when you're sitting on the gym floor trying to catch your breath. It's not going to work in a message chat or in an Instagram post or through a megaphone out in the middle of the corso. There is no snappy 120-character answer on this that our world will be able to make sense of. It would be nice if there was, but there isn't. And guess what? The world's answer is actually much shorter than a house. Here's what the world says. Can you flick the slide on? Please, Mum? Thank you. Here's what the world says. It feels good, it's not hurting anyone, and it's love. So you just hate people that are different. Friends, that's a hundred characters long. (laughs) There's room to spare. They've got a tweet... We've got a 10,000 foot trek. And as hard as that makes it for us, I actually think it's a good thing. And we're going to come back at the end and explore why that might be. That's what makes it hard. We've lacked love. We've lost the perceptions game. And we're working with an answer at 10,000 feet. What then is the way forward? We're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about how to answer the question, is God homophobic? Here are some thoughts. Firstly, there is so much more to this than just an answer to be given. As I said at the start, this isn't just an issue to be debated or an idea that we argue about. We're talking about people here. We're talking about people. This is real life stuff. This isn't abstract. It's concrete. And our words are powerful. So, what we say and how we say it actually really matters, even more so because we're talking about people. So, gentleness and compassion and respect that needs to season all of our conversations, especially in this area. Secondly, there is so much more that's been written and said on this than by people who are far more qualified to speak than I am. People like Sam Albury. Rachel Gilson, Wesley Hill, and Rosaria Butterfield. All four of them have had to grapple with same-sex attraction themselves, and they will have very powerful testimonies. Rosaria Butterfield, for instance, uh, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in the US. She held a PhD in queer theory, and she herself was in a same-sex relationship. She's written a bunch of great books, but in her first called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She actually tells the the amazing story of her coming to faith and how it resulted in her losing everything but the dog, as she puts it. Very powerful. And of course, there's Rebecca McLaughlin's Confronting Christianity, which I know a lot of people have probably been reading as we've started this series together, um, in the chapter where she answers this question great chapter, but part of that is actually also sh- her sharing her, her own journey in grappling with same-sex attraction. Powerful stories. And there's lots to choose from. There's plenty for us to read. So can I encourage you to do that if you actually haven't before in this space? Bruce's weekly email actually had a link with all of the references I just mentioned and a whole bunch more. Um, if you didn't get that that, that resource list, Do let us know via the connection cards this week and we'll make sure we get that to you. But thirdly, when it comes to God's design, there is so much more to marriage and sex than our culture leads us to believe. So much more. It's funny because Christianity has this reputation for being really restrictive and limiting, but I actually think the opposite is the case, especially with marriage and sex. Because we're now at a place where in our culture, sex is really just for pleasure and marriage is is really just an expression of love, of romantic love. And you know, the Bible actually says a big yes to both those things and and it also says there's so much more. There's so much more. As I said earlier, this is kind of well-trodden ground for us as a church so I'm not going to spend super long on it, but Marriage actually plays a central role in the whole story of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. It it is no accident that the second chapter of the whole Bible, Genesis 2, has at its climax the wedding of the first man and woman. And then 900-odd chapters later, in the second last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, the climax of all things is actually described as a wedding between Christ and his church. Marriage is there from beginning to end in the Bible. It both sets creation on its course, it enables humanity to to fill the earth and subdue it, and it also stands as this primary symbol and signpost for what it is we're all waiting for. Eternal union with God as the bride of Christ. So it's so much more than simply an expression of romantic love. Marriage is, is an architectural doctrine for the Christian life, it's been described as. Marriage between a man and a woman is actually part of the, the structural fabric of creation. And so any, any other kind of marriage that we might come up with, that we might experiment with, any other kind of marriage actually sits outside of God's design. Likewise with sex. God's designed it to be so much more than just a a recreational pleasure. It is actually the binding agent for a marriage. And as as a couple becomes one flesh in body, so much more is actually happening emotionally, relationally, spiritually, even sacrificially. So much more is going on. And similar to a marriage, sex itself actually points beyond itself to the union that we share with Christ, it is powerful, it's profound, God's designed it to be protected in a marriage, which is why marriage is really the only place that it belongs, and any other sexual expression actually sits outside of God's design, which is what the Bible calls sin. That goes for things like lust, and pornography, premarital sex, and adultery. Now, remember, these answers, they sit at 10,000 feet, right? They rest on a whole lot of other important doctrines. So if you're not on board with them, I don't expect you to be on board with this. But at the very least, I hope that you can sense that the historic Christian position on this is not just arbitrary. It's not just archaic. It's because we hold that God's vision for marriage and for sex is far grander and far more profound than just pleasure and romantic love. A couple of pastoral questions might arise at this point. Are you saying that same-sex couples can't love each other as much? No. Of course they can. And they do. I know of examples where these relationships are actually more faithful and committed to one another than than some heterosexual marriages. This is not a question of of whether they can be faithful to each other. It's a question of function and purpose. Secondly, are you really saying that someone who is same-sex attracted and wanting to live according to God's design, that they're now destined to go through life never having sex nor having a life partner? How is that not cruel and unusual punishment for for desires that they don't even have control over? You can feel the weight of that question, right? Firstly, as hard as it might be, that's actually what God asks of everyone who isn't married, whether same-sex attracted or not. And secondly, discipleship in the Christian life is hard really hard and it's costly and that's not just for those who are same-sex attracted it's costly for everyone you see you can't turn to Christ without turning away from something else you can see just how hard that is to do from the first of our two readings from Luke chapter 18 where we see a, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus because he wants to know how to receive eternal life what a great question that is by the way that he asks Jesus, such a great question. And it turns out that that this man's lived a really obedient life. He's followed all the rules. Verse 22, though, Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Basically, Jesus is saying, treasure me. Treasure me instead of your treasure. Put my kingdom before the one you have built for yourself. Let me be your comfort. Let me be your security instead of your wealth. You see, you can't turn to Christ without turning away from something else. And for this rich young ruler, for him that cost is too high. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Friends, self-denial is not a dirty word. It's actually central to the Christian life. For everyone, for all of us. And so there's going to be all kinds of behaviours and desires, all kinds of hopes and dreams and ambitions that if, if they're a part of our old lives, the old self, then we actually need to leave them behind, as hard as that might be. Friends, discipleship with Jesus is costly for everyone. That doesn't mean that the cost is going to look the same, or that it will even feel equally as costly at every moment in our lives. But I really like how Sam Albury puts it, In his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says this, Ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, Well, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily, without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or their aspirations, it is likely they have not really started following Jesus at all. Is that not a challenge for all of us? I do just want to say, if you are same-sex attracted and you're grappling with, with what that looks like as a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to do that alone. This is a community that is prepared to walk alongside you. We must be a community that's willing to walk alongside you. And so do please reach out. Fourthly, there is so much more to you than your sexuality. And that that goes for all of us. We are more than our sexual orientation. God is interested in more of you than that. And I'm sorry if the church has made it seem like this is the only thing that matters as if you're somehow deficient or incomplete, if you're not married or you're not having sex, because the truth is that's not true, not at all. But it is true that our culture peddles that message, doesn't it? It tells you you are who you sleep with. Sexuality is at the core of who you are, which of course is why there's such a strong push for us to have the freedom to express it, because that's who you are that is who I am. Friends, that's simply not the case. You are more than your sexuality. God is interested in so much more of you than that. He doesn't just see one part of you, he sees all of you and he knows you completely. In all of my beauty and brokenness, he knows me completely. He sees everything and he loves you. That's kind of what I was trying to get across that day as we were catching our breath at F45. Kate and I are gay, so would you marry us? Could have said a lot of things. Could have quoted from Genesis 2, could have explained God's good design for marriage, tried talking to them at 10,000 feet. Maybe that would have worked. Here's what I said instead. I said, well, I'm not a general celebrant, so by law I've actually got to follow the Anglican rites for marriage, and there aren't any rights for, for a same sex couple. So I sidestepped it. And then, before she could come back at me, I added But regardless of what God thinks about marriage, He wants you to know that He loves you. No matter who you are, He loves you more than you can imagine. They liked that answer. The convo didn't go any further, but we stayed gym buddies. Unfortunately, soon after, they moved out of the area, but they gave me a hug before they left. Friends, today, the historic view of sex and marriage is attacked as harmful and dangerous, which it's not. And so it's right that we defend it, and yet we do our world a great disservice when this becomes the only thing we're known for. Like We've got so much more to share, don't we? We need to make sure that they hear us on that too. And I really do love the simple reminder that uh, McLaughlin gives us in her chapter on this. She says, Heterosexuality is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus is. Friends, Jesus is. Let's not forget that. And speaking of Jesus, we're going to finish up by just thinking about his controversial company And looking at chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, which gives us the account of the time when Jesus invites himself over for dinner and completely changes a man's life. But you see, Zacchaeus wasn't just a man, any man. He's described here as a chief tax collector, which tells us that this guy loved money more than anything else. Because you kind of had to as a tax collector. That was basically the only perk of the job Uh, Tax collectors were despised and hated by just about everyone. They were kind of written off to the outskirts of society as traitors and thieves. So Zacchaeus obviously figured it was worth the money. What I love about this story, though, is that Jesus invites himself over to dinner, to the house of his enemy. You see, Jesus had very strong convictions about those who were greedy those who were dishonest, about those who loved money. Just as he had convictions about, about sex outside of marriage, Jesus taught with conviction on these things. And yet, it didn't stop him from acting with compassion, did it? And when he sees the Zacchaeus hanging out of that tree, he doesn't ignore him. He doesn't sneer at him like everyone else probably was. He doesn't look up and say, Hey you, what are you going to do with all that money you've stolen? He simply says... What are you cooking for dinner? I'm coming around. And Jesus doesn't care that it might make him look soft on tax collecting and on greed. He chooses to lean in to Zacchaeus, to be present with him. You see, that's the the genius of Jesus. He's able to hold his conviction right alongside his compassion. And here, miraculously, one night with Jesus is all it takes. Such is the power of his presence and welcome that by just the end of the evening, Zacchaeus willingly willingly turns away from his deepest desires because he's found an even better one, Jesus. Friends, our aim in any of this, with whatever question we're trying to answer about any topic, our goal should be to introduce people to Jesus. And that's why I think the 10,000-foot answer is actually a blessing in disguise for us because we can't just shout it out or tweet it. Our answer here actually requires the context of of patient, authentic relationship where we can build trust and show love, where we can listen well and speak with sensitivity. Because you see, our aim is not to win the argument, it's actually just to make an introduction. That's our job. Because the truth is, we're not going to argue someone into the kingdom, are we? Nobody will ever be willing to abandon their deepest, most cherished desires unless they encounter him. And by a work of the Spirit, they actually discover an even greater desire. When the rich young ruler walks away sad because the cost is too high, the disciples are disturbed, aren't they? If not him, they say, he was the prime candidate, you know, if not him, then who can be saved? And Jesus reminds them, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I love then that it's less than a chapter later that a very rich man actually does find salvation. The impossible becomes possible. It's amazing. So, friends, don't lose heart at the difficulty of this task. Whether, uh, whether it's difficult to grapple with the cost of discipleship or whether it's difficult to try to speak on these matters with people because, friends, we worship a God who operates in the impossible, don't we? Our job is to make the introduction. Can I finish with just one example of a church who is trying to do this well? Vine Church in Surrey Hills. It sits right on the root of the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras each year. Rather than battening down the hatches or sticking up a protest sign or something, they actually, they lean in. They open up the church grounds, they offer a quiet space away from the crowds, they give out free pancakes and chai tea, they set up the church as a space to pray, and here is their motto for the night, they say this, We're not here to protest or promote, we're here to help when necessary and witness where appropriate. I'm told they have great gospel conversations with people every year, with people who are always totally surprised that a church would do something like this. Friends, if our culture is gonna pitch us as the enemies, and they do, if we're now the bad guys, then let's live as the strangest, most confounding enemies the world's ever seen. Right? Let's be enemies that love instead of loathe. Enemies that lean in instead of leave. Because when we're willing to do that, we will be introducing the world to our saviour. And so maybe another way you might try answering the question, is God homophobic? Is simply to say, why don't you come meet him and find out? We're going to do something a little bit different as we end together now. Before we, f- we sing our final song, I'm actually going to lead us in a time of responsive prayer. We're going to pray through a few different things, and at each point, I'm just going to give us 30 seconds or so to, um, to actually pray quietly yourselves in your own hearts. I'm going to give us space... Firstly, to to pray a prayer of repentance for our own failings in this area, whatever that looks like. Then, we're going to pray for us as a community, for people that we know who are in our midst that need prayer on this. And finally, we're going to pray for our world in general. Would you do that with me? Let's pray. Father God, we repent of those times when we personally have done or said or thought things that have lacked love. We give them to you now, Lord, in confession. Lord, have mercy on us. And as we repent, Lord, we do so in confidence that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. We also bring before you those within our community here at St. Matt's, for those in our midst who are struggling to make sense of this area of your teaching, or for those of us who are grappling with their own sexuality and the cost of discipleship. Lord, we lift those within our community up to you now. Lord, hear our prayers. Finally, Father, we bring before you our world. We bring before you manly and beyond. We pray, Lord, for us as a society here in Australia as we wrestle with these issues, both publicly and privately, Lord. We also pray for friends and for family and for co-workers, those whom we love, for which this is the thing that's stopping them from considering you. Lord, we bring them before you now. Father God, we take great comfort in the knowledge that what seems impossible for us is certainly not po- is certainly possible for you. Thank you, Lord, for your Son Jesus, in whose name we gather together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for all that He has done for us, that He takes us as we are, and yet never leaves us the same way. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your forgiveness for the redeeming sacrifice that was made on our behalf, that washes us clean, that makes us new. Lord, you are a good father. And we are loved by you. That is who you are. And that is who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing our final song. Good, good father that speaks of his love for us. That we are loved by him no matter who we are.